Hello, and welcome to episode 433 of the Creighton Crowbar. It is the 28th of February, 2024. At the time of recording, my name is Chris Thurston, and joining me tonight is Marsh Davis. That's me. Hello. Hi, Marsh. Can I... I want to pitch something to you. No. Oh, well... Uh, okay. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, that was the setup, so I would have been... I would have just done it anyway, let's be honest, uh, regardless of what you said. <laughs> but anyway... What I want to pitch to you is a new, a fifth season of True Detective. I appreciate it. I was just listening to the podcast you recorded with Jamie about Fargo and True Detective. Here's the, I want to pitch it to you through the medium of the opening scene, if that's okay. All right. So if we can just enter that kind of imaginative space, right? Mm -hmm. Like This is the opening uh, scene, not the credits sequence. uh, No, I don't think, I think this is the pre-credits sequence. And actually we probably should try and figure out what the music would be that follows this. Um, it's this. So we open, um, on two weary, uh, two weary policemen who've, who've seen far too much. And those two policemen are you and me in this scenario. We are the new duo and we're riding a bus to the scene of a crime because, uh, neither of us, as I understand it, can drive. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> we would be in a car. <laughs> and and when neither of us are talking to each other, we're kind of staring into the middle distance. Uh, audience gets a strong sense of the the magnitude of what it is that we're about to kind of be faced with. What kind of uh, uncanny uh, act of criminality that we will be forced to. Uh, expend ourselves against in the course of the next, you know, five to 10 episodes of prestige television. (laughs) It's at this point that we cut away to like a broader sense of the society in which we exist, which will be the backdrop for this much of this sort of psychodrama. And uh, eventually it will cut to like, you know, it will cut to like the thing you're looking at on your phone and I'm driving, I guess. And you sigh wearily. And then on your phone, the audience sees the words, Police called to Willy Wonka event after <laughs> refunds demanded. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. I, I love everything about what this story is. I don't know if you have also seen it. I know you have, but... Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Although I, every time I see uh, an AI-generated image, a little voice in my head says, kill yourself. I actually um, <laughs> I actually got a great deal of pleasure. Great from... material for the show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I actually got a great deal of pleasure from this story just because of the, the immense stupidness of the, the language that it, it had generated. What was it? Some kind of tons? Crunch, crump, crumpty tons? Crumpty tons. Yeah. Um, I think so. Actually, at, at that moment in the show, once those words are seen, that's when we cut to our title sequence with uh, life by desiree yes right yeah I th- you don't want to see a ghost you'd rather have a piece of toast watch the <laughs> evening news indeed i was going to say that we might get like um a, like a really slow burn cover of something like let's say lord covering the venga bus is coming something <laughs> like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> As um, and then you know we'll just flash forward right to the ending. The episode six, like I I rugby tackle a man dressed as Willy Wonka off the roof of a a building. Our bodies collapse, go crash through a a skylight into a huge server room. Um, and there's then um, you ruminate on the pointlessness of this entire endeavor and walk away. That's 
that's the ending. We've, we've covered the whole thing now. Perfect. Sold. Yeah. Let's yeah. see if uh, HBO goes for it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so what's happened is this. Um, an events company has AI generated, as far as we can tell, every aspect of a live immersive Willy Wonka experience, which if you want to terrify me is a trick of phase of some kind. Um, and it's, and, and it's been such a shit show that parents of disappointed children phoned the police, which I think the thing I love the most about this is the AI generated their art for the posters. The AI generated the scripts for the performers. And at no point it appears did anyone involved go, Oh, after you've done that, the computer can't do it for you. And so I was looking at some of the scripts today, and the scripts are impossible to stage. And there's a wonderful, I saw a tweet, I unfortunately can't remember who it was, um, pointing out like the, the script is like, the audience enters a room uh, with a lemonade river, <laughs> a free-flowing, <laughs> yeah. drinkable lemonade river. Like I used to work in the theater. Like that alone, you just like, you know, somewhere, a, a stage manager has just taken eight D10 psychic damage, like <laughs> yeah. from that sentence alone, the audience. And then the great thing is the script even has like direction for the audience's response. Like the audience whoops in delight and feels relieved when they sip the delicious <laughs> lemonade. And then this juxtaposed with a picture of an unadorned catering table with like eight, um, eight plastic uh, drinking cups on it that are just full enough with lemonade from a visibly open nearby catering pack of like, I don't know, Aldi own brand lemonade to make it all look like they're a little bit full of piss. <laughs> it's, it's, it's perfect. It's <laughs> honestly, I keep, I've had the page, please call to Willy Wonka event after refunds demanded open because I think it's going to get taken that, down at some point and we're going to lose access to this, this beautiful artifact. Yeah. But I think there's something about that phrase, that exact phrase that I find nourishing and I can't articulate why <laughs> like police called to Willy Wonka event after <laughs> refunds demanded like that's, I don't think that's been uttered before. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Maybe that's one of the uh, energemic sounds promised by the uh, AI generated text. <laughs> or is it maybe an ungyravel swide? <laughs> See, you just in the right lighting, that's Chaucer, baby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, I mean I think this is the thing, is like honestly, looking at the photos of this barely adorned, what looks like like disused Amazon logistics warehouse in which they have erected some tarps and dressed a man up as, what was he called? Like the the anti-Wonka or whatever he's called. <laughs> yeah, like... he promised a villain of some <laughs> yeah, spot. Exactly. He'll be thwarted. Right. Um, <laughs> thwart like this poor actor in like a mask and hat, like appearing behind a mirror to terrify some otherwise totally unmoved Scottish children. It's, <laughs> it's so, it's perfect. Like, but also, I mean... There's like, it's also just too well lit. Like a lot of their issues could have been solved by just switching the big light off, which is, um, <laughs> it's it's a miracle. I think that that um, I think it's the I think the thing I love about it so much because I do love an unforced error. I find it very funny. Is like somewhere between AI generating the posters, AI generating the advertising, AI generating the script, 
hiring the actors and bringing them in, nobody said stop. You know, no one was like, this is total horseshit. And I think the reason it's perfect as well is it is existentially cringe. It is like an Omega level gut punch cringe event. And it is deeply tied to AI. And I think AI deserves a lot of those. You know what I mean? Britain has a, a very good line in uh, upsettingly bad children's activities. And this True. has been going on for many years. In fact, there was uh, one in 2022, um, which the Sun headlined, Disgraceland, Depre- depressing winter wonderland with creepy Santa shut down after livid parents complain. So it's almost exactly the same story. But it doesn't have that that frisson of AI generated uh, grift, uh, and it's mm. worse for it somehow. I think it's I think that's but that's an association because you're absolutely right. But I think it's apt that in this case something that looks like it was generated with Mid Journey is being attached to the kind of event that you'd associate with, like I don't know, an incredibly shit and dangerous local carnival that takes over the central square in one of Britain's many disposable market towns. Um. And is full of like I don't know, uh, a, like a, a Ferris wheel with a airbrushed, off-brand, slightly melted-looking RoboCop on the side. You know what I mean? And it's like it's fair to say that the output of a lot of AI generative art tools is things that look like an airbrushed RoboCop on the side of a van. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that's the those things have a similar quality and because perhaps they're born from the same urge, which is like um, a combination of uh, expediency and a lack of respect for IP ownership. (laughs) (laughs) And what links that proud tradition of very shit local fares. And and well, no, I think it's, I think it's vital to have a link between some real chances trying to get 35 quid out of a bunch of different parents capitalizing on the, I guess, Wonka mania of a month and a half ago, whatever that was. Um, and Silicon Valley grifters, you know, trying to extract far more than that <laughs> at far greater cost to the people of the creative industries that they would otherwise, <laughs> you know, that they're preying upon. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just one of those. It's, it's very rare that you get wholly um, good news in this day and age. <laughs> um, but, and there's something about the fact that, like, the organizers, um, the name for themselves is called House of Illuminati, which I think is perfect as well. <laughs> That's also quite cringe. And I feel this way because like, I am in a couple of months moving to Bristol. And I like Bristol quite a bit. I spend quite a bit of time there. I'm looking forward to living there, leaving Bath after 13 years. And um, um, But this whole event, the reason I can make fun of it is uh, this will probably make me no friends in the city to which I'm about to move. This whole thing could have happened in Bristol. pretty i would not put it you know what i mean and um and maybe i just hope to be blessed by something like this landing in my own back garden at some point soon we can Um, only hope yeah absolutely uh what a treat i also have uh, a a tale of bathos uh involving mangled words that's the jeff bathos the owner (laughs) (laughs) i don't know there's no punchline that that was that was the punchline <laughs> to a joke with no beginning. <laughs> so a few weeks back, uh, you may recall, Chris, in our Discord, we were talking about the what turns out to be the sad fate 
of a, a first-person wizard game called Immortals of Avium, mm. um, based on the news that I had apparently wildly underperformed. And two things struck me about this news. Firstly, that the game had actually come out at all, which was a surprise <laughs> to me. Uh, and secondly, that EA had apparently spent $40 million on marketing and uh, distribution of the game, which, had that money been well spent, you might think would have resulted in me knowing <laughs> that it had come out. Uh, but <laughs> right. also... Reasonable, yeah. Perhaps somewhat earlier in the game's development cycle, that money could have purchased access to enough marketing expertise such that somewhere, somewhere in the process, would have said, no, let's not call our game Immortals of Avium, um, mm -hmm. which sounds uh, like a moisturizing product. Uh, and yet nobody did. I can imagine, I can, as someone who does like fantasy world building for a living now, I can, there, there is a, and I am obviously now working full-time in game dev. I'm sympathetic to the point where, by which both something like that might happen and how it might get missed, that that's not a very compelling name for a game. I'll put it that way, but as kindly as I possibly can. You're absolutely right. Kind of sounds like a moisturizer. Um, it's, you know, and it, this is, and it is far from the only game to use that structure. And I can understand why people can say, well, how is this any more or less nonsense than the phrase um, Path of Exile, for example. I wanted to say Baldur's Gate then, but I think that's a recognizable brand and you get kind of muddy in that. Mm. Or um, what was the one that just came out? Uh, Last Epoch. Mm. Last Epoch, right? Mm-hmm. But at least Epoch is unusual. Not a great name, but like, you know, naming games is a is a, a bit of a mystery, right, in terms of what's going to be impactful with people and what won't. But I can, you know, and I think the, the answer is ultimately going to be vibes, <laughs> basically. Like, if you can kind of, um, if, you, if, if you've actually captured something with the name, whatever fantasy nonsense you've chosen, that people then feel compelled to repeat to one another, you've probably been successful. And I think a lot of like well-structured game development, um, which I would otherwise aspire to and want to defend, can struggle to respond to something that's simply off from a, you know, vibes perspective. Mm. Games are something I bang on a lot about at the moment. And I think I've said it on the podcast before, games generally are very rarely the sum of their parts. They're usually more or less recently... Helldivers, great example of a game that is more than the sum of its excellent parts. It achieves that because those parts are excellent and very good in combination with one another. But also uh, a punchy neologism as a name. That's not bad. Yeah, exactly. And But um, all games are less, right? Like you, never, you very rarely play in a game and go like, wow, I really appreciate the exact sum of the entertainment I'm having. Like you are either charmed by the ways in which it kind of achieves some sort of impact on you above and beyond those individual components or you're left wanting something that it's not doing or not giving you and um it's so easy to do that while still having done all of the bits that you needed to do to ship the thing and in this case like you know immortals of avium is exactly the kind of name that i don't expect to register on a this isn't going to work ometer um while also desperately never going never never being in a situation where it was going to catch fire right 
Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect there are other things around the game which also didn't help it stand out. Like if it had been, you know, stunningly and stridently uh, original in its presentation, otherwise, then maybe it would have overcome the name. But I, I just think if if your if your the name of your game contains one made up word, be careful. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's also if you're going to. I mean, I think I said this in Discord at the time, but like if you're going. If you're going to be, and this is actually, this is something I would level at a whole school of like world building, mm. and, which is, and this is to the, to an earlier point, I suppose, if you're doing high fantasy, particularly high fantasy, let yourself be cringe. Don't half bake it, fully bake it. Mm. Like, like, you know, um, like, uh, there's a, there's a love for like, you know, faux Latin that is not so, it's not like into the sort of the, the Warhammer extremes of like utter kind of like high Gothic nonsense, but nor is it, um, you know, meaningful necessarily. We're in a kind of Latin nonsense phrase sort of territory. And it is just an, it's an evident fact that that territory is shared by a lot of other products trying to sound fancy. It puts you in the same domain as skin creams. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so like the way to get out of like Legends of Avium is to call it Legends of Wizard Fuck or something. <laughs> and maybe not that. That's a bad idea. But um, like you'd remember that. And it makes me think of like, you know, there's a there's an art also to like sometimes the completely nonsense names that games have. Octopath Traveler. You know. Yeah, but that's a that's a great name. I mean, right. there's there's so much about that that it intrigues you. I think, it, yeah, it's 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 intriguing, but you can't say it's not like kind of a nonsense mouthful. The reason I think I do think it does work. That's the thing. But I think there's a magic to the, why it works and why this doesn't. And I guess that's what I'm trying to articulate. That I can understand why a critical process that's trying to assess like what is the right level of like evocative fantasy phrasing to sell our game doesn't pick up on the difference between Octopath Traveler and Legends of Avium. Yes, yeah, I suppose so. I don't know, yeah, I, but I do think, yeah, you need to go full cringe oh. when you when you're going yeah. towards fantasy. I can't remember there was um there was a game it got cancelled in the end that was being made by Avalanche Studios, which was like an open world just cause, but you were riding a dragon, or maybe you are a dragon. I'm trying to look for it now, mm. and I can't see it, but I, I I I distinctly recall me petitioning them very hard to call it Lizard Wizard, um, and they didn't <laughs> listen, and it got cancelled. And I think that was the reason why, frankly. Yeah. So the other thing I would add to the story is that 40 million marketing budget with no appreciable impact is obviously nuts as a story, but my experience, I'll say this in a, in a, in a kind of very hands-off way, my experience with the, the way that very large publishers are structured suggests that a certain amount of money can be unlocked and then not necessarily used in the most effective way. I I doubt that was $40 million in the hands of like one super, super empowered marketing unit mm. delivered the mission to make Immortals of Avium a household name. I suspect that was $40 million in a distributed set of efforts across many different regional teams. And again, and, you know, the, where the outcome is like a lot of emails bouncing off the desks of gaming outlets all over the world and a lot of influencers shrugging right yeah that's yeah. My, my prediction 
But there's also, I mean, there's also an interesting phenomenon now uh, where there's advertising, even if a huge amount of advertising has been spent, a lot of that just falls into the black hole of uh, ad blockers. And unless you're watching the things like the Super Bowl, then you won't see it. Like uh, there was a um, a new TV series, apparently is very good, appearing on Hulu, I think, over here. I don't know what, what it is in the UK called Shogun. Um, and there's been a whole bunch of like reportage about it, about how people haven't heard of it or haven't weren't expecting it to come out, never right. never anticipated it. But they bought a Super Bowl ad, and the Super Bowl was one of the most watched events ever in the history of Earth. <laughs> so, right. so like a lot of people, people did States. hear about it, but not the people who are writing about it. And it's just a weird way that like culture and reporting, and maybe even the entire class of people who who are likely to be media reporters are just savvy enough to avoid all advertising. <laughs> right. It's just fractured. It's fractured us in a way. There's there's no kind of single water cooler moments anymore because we're all in our own little uh, gardens, walled gardens. Drinking from the hose. I don't know. Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, a, there's mm. another game that uh, uh, came up called... Um, it was. It's a game by Don't Nod, uh, which is a studio of considerable stature, whose games are generally well liked, even by me. And um, <laughs> uh, I hadn't heard that they had released a, a, a like a third-person action game, uh, which is apparently quite good, called Banishers: Ghosts of New Eden. Uh, which is again like I mean, even though that doesn't have any nonsense words in it, just like with every extra word that they've added to that salad, they have diminished the power of the ones that were previously there. Also, that is quite a literal explanation of what happens in the game, so I can't really fault it for that. But anyway, as as a result of these these discoveries, I made it my mission to play these uh, overlooked games, and. I can tell you that the first 99 minutes of Banisher's Ghosts of New Eden is okay. Great. And then I made the mistake of installing Bellatro, and I haven't played anything else. <laughs> <laughs> and I've uninstalled those games that I diligently installed uh, in order to talk about them on the podcast. But instead, uh, Bellatro, a card game uh, that I thought would be a bit of light relief in between like the self-serious cutscenes of uh, the other two games and instead it's just it's taken over my life more or less well at least the the part of it that i apportion out for gaming i think we have to reset the little timer we have that's like days since episodes since a deck builder derailed <laughs> podcast for anywhere between three to six years well, zero. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I'm, I'm not, I've, I've said this on the podcast before, but I'm not hugely into deck builder games that only exist as deck builder games. Like I like deck building as like a component in other games, um, uh, like Thronebreaker. I really enjoyed it in the, the that's the Witcher spinoff, which was mm-hmm. uh, had a, like a deck building component as the game. I really enjoyed that. But usually, um, and I think this will be the case with Bellatro as well. Like once I've I've uh, I've beaten it, and I have now beaten it at least once. Then my desire to go back to it sort of expires a little bit. I'm I'm not so into uh, exploring the systems and the different kind of parameters of it that um, they they hold me for that long. But it it seems to have done really well. Like there were Guardian articles about it, so it's it, you know talking about those games that exist only within one part of our fractured culture. This seems to have escaped its cage. And uh, made it elsewhere. Yeah, tell me about it, actually, because I've it's 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 definitely made waves like within pretty much every 
game dev circle I move within. I haven't played it yet myself, um, but I almost certainly will start soon. Like, what is it that it is doing that is compelling beyond, I don't know, a Slay the Spire or a well, similar thing? I think, so one of the things that hooked me is that it, it appears, uh, it uses a lot of the iconography of poker but then immediately subverts it. So, uh, you, you know, within the kinds of cards that you'll have at your disposal, it will be like occasional credit cards and a crumpled up receipt and a to-do list mm. and these things. And all of these things commute particular powers. So there is a, there's a sort of playfulness to it, uh, like, uh, you know, sort of almost cursed card game aesthetic where you are, you're, you're taking apart the rules of the game and reconfiguring them to your benefit. And I think that feels different and kind of more taboo in an exciting way than um, the sort of more um, intended ways in which you manipulate decks in other uh, other, cool. other games. Yeah. So it has, in fact, I, I compare it more to Inscription, even though it's mm -hmm. not quite as meta as Inscription. But it does have that feeling that you're doing something uh, underhand in, in an intentional way. <clears throat> but like I say, it does use poker hands to score but it's not exactly a version of poker because you don't play against an opponent at all instead you're given like a numerical target to hit and you have to play four hands usually of uh four poker hands uh in succession to um cumulatively beat that value that target um, and different hands obviously have different values and they are more or less equivalent to how hands are ranked in actual poker. So a high card is worth less than a pair, which is worth less than two pairs and so on, all the way up to a straight flush. Um, and you also get a chance to discard and redraw cards a certain number of times whilst you're trying to hit this target. And if you beat that target, you advance to the next round. And there's an even bigger target to hit, which is not interesting so far. But... <laughs> The fact that you completely you can completely fuck with the deck, the valuation with the deck, and the way it's scored sets it apart. So between rounds, you get to visit the shop, which allows you to buy special jokers, which you don't play; they just sit above uh, the the game, and but they modify the game rules in fairly extreme ways. So one joker might apply a multiplier to your score for a particular round for every spade that you play in your hand, and another might say, okay straights uh, don't need to be formed from consecutive cards. They can be formed from cards which are one-off being consecutive. So like a straight would normally be a hand like five, six, seven, eight, nine. But now you mm -hmm. can play three, five, six, seven, nine. Right. And of course that like massively increases the likelihood of you being able to form a straight from your hand at all. And then you might get a joker, which then adds another multiplier to your hand based on the number of times it's played. So you keep on playing straights and those straights just get more and more valuable as you go. And another then maybe gives uh, you a one in four chance of permanently boosting the value uh, returned by a particular hand whenever it's played. And so pr pretty quickly, if the RNG is like smiling upon you, you can build these absolutely staggering synergies which just blow away the uh, the the targets you're meant to hit, and that that's not even that's not even it, Chris. That's not all. What <laughs> the jokers the jokers are just the tip of the iceberg. You can buy tarot cards, which are these disposable cards which you either store for later or you can use them immediately, and they um, they they have effects to particular individual cards rather than to the scoring of the game. So you might you might. Um, 
uh, apply a, uh, a tarot card which causes a, uh, one of the cards in your your deck to return more points normally when it's played or add, adds, a, adds a multiplier when that card is retained in your hand instead of played. Or you could turn a card into another card so that you have five aces in your pack. And you know if you're lucky with the tarot cards that the game dispenses and you do that enough times, you can pretty much guarantee that you'll always get pairs or triples or fours of a kind on any draw. And then there are also other kinds of weird consumable cards, like these celestial cards uh, that you get out of these foil packs, and they they um, they change the kind of raw valuation of hands. And so, in the game where I actually actually managed to beat the game, uh, I ended up making two pair the most valuable hand that I could play by uh, a factor of twenty. <laughs> <laughs> and two pair, if you're not that familiar with with poker, is, is a hand that is normally very easy to get and and is very low valued in terms of the normal poker ranking but if you fill your deck full of duplicates <laughs> thanks to tarot <laughs> cards you're very very much guaranteed to get it all the time and then there are also other kinds of more powerful cards like spectral cards which are like highly randomized um that they can they can change your entire deck to a single suit for example or they can um they usually have some kind of uh sting in the tail so one might create a, a rare joker but it's a random rare joker, so you don't know if that's going to synergize with what you already have. And it also sets all the money you've earned so far to, to zero. Um, or then you'll get some cards which are boosted whilst it randomly deletes others from your deck. Um, I haven't really got into those because I don't. there's so little time to like pick a strategy and double down on it before the target scores get too high to beat um, that you can't really in the mid to late game say, I know I'm just going to possibly completely fuck up my deck. <laughs> you right. know, that just doesn't seem to be possible, but may maybe I'm just missing something. Um, and you, you might think as a result of all those synergies being available to you, it would be just incredibly trivial for you to beat the game. But the, the, the game is also throwing in its wild counters. Um, it has these boss rounds. So like every three rounds you hit a boss uh, it's not a kind of personified thing. It's just uh, a numerical target, but with an extra set of rules to it. So like the rules are this round, all the cards will be played face down. Um, or you can't discard at all. Uh, or you can only actually play one single hand in order to beat the target. Or all, all the cards of a particular suitor are now valueless. Right. Um, and that, that, that's not permanent. That's just for that that boss. And then it goes back to normal again. But those, those are often like... A, like a, a proper full stop, you know, you, they're, they're, I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that sometimes because it does feel like the game is just occasionally giving you a boss, which, which are randomized. They're not in a particular order as you process through the game. But some, some of them are just like, oh, okay, that's, that's guaranteed instant failure. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that's bad or not because, you know, sometimes Solitaire just shuts you down too. And, and I don't think it's necessarily a worse game for that. Hmm. It's not that easy to calculate the value of, of a hand in your head because there's often a gazillion multipliers and so forth in play. And it'll give you maybe the like the base value of your hand. It'll tell you what that is, but it won't do all the kind of addition and multiplication to get your final score in advance of you playing it, which is kind of odd um, mm. because you'd think, well, isn't that... That sort of feels like it's obfuscating a lot of the the things going on under the hood that are ultimately absolutely vital for determining your success or failure. And I could, 
I could conceive of a game in which it was like it allowed your strategic repertoire to be a bit broader within a within a game. Like like I said before, the 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 targets rise so quickly that you don't really have time to choose more than one strategy. But I could I could imagine a game which gave you more breathing room and you're able to pursue a couple of different strategies. And then I had imagined it would be more valuable to surface how things are going to be scored so you could pick between them. But I was, I was thinking about this. And I, was, I was making notes for this. I thought, actually, no, <laughs> I, mm. I don't want that. I want just something completely digital, which says, you know, you might not be able to calculus, calculate this fully, but you probably have a sense of whether it is enough, you know? And maybe that's that's the high limit of the cognitive load that I could take. Because I think if you if you had lots of options and you had to it and you're weighing up all these different uh all these different equations in your head, I think you it would become pretty exhausting quite quickly. So maybe it's better that you do all of your thinking, basically. In the round, in in the time between rounds, when you're figuring out what to buy in the shop, and then when you actually play a game of it, it's basically win fail. Maybe with a, I mean, you get a little kind of addition of tactics when you're thinking about how you know whether or not to burn through discards, or or whether you you know deploy a tarot that you tarot card that you've been holding back or something like that. But generally speaking, when you're playing the game, you're you're focused on achieving one thing, and the cards will either give you that or they won't. Um, yeah. But then, then again, maybe because it doesn't have that sort of like tactical crunch in the act of actually playing the cards, maybe that's why now that I've beaten it, my desire to go back to it has has evaporated. That's an interesting one. I think you're on something where you sort of because I think obviously deck building as a mechanic can like be the engine of a lot of different experiences right like it can we use an rpg sense or a strategy sense or, or something like that but crucially i think a lot of these games are effectively and this isn't intended to sound reductive like successes to solitaire right they are solitaire mm. card games i think it's kind of cool that you know or something like free cell even my father's preferred uh <laughs> windows default install card experience where you know they are engagements with the so, so, solitary engagements with the mathematical systems present within a deck of cards, right? Um, and obviously, in a digital context, you can pile on a lot of other mechanics on top of that. But I was just thinking about—I was thinking about our history of talking about these games, actually, and the experience is obviously you know accessible in terms of mechanical complexity and interesting mechanics and interesting ideas, and in terms of, as you said like presentation style and sort of vibe generally to go back to that. But in another sense, they are quite intensely uh, personal experiences in quite a strange way, if you know what I mean by that, where it's like, you're going to spend a little bit of time in the company of your own luck <laughs> right. and your own ability to kind of develop your understanding of those systems. Mm. And I think they're in that category of game experience where like, I think they can generate interesting stories, for example, but they also have the quality of like, um, well, I got this card and this card and this card and this card, and then this happened. It tends to be how much of the stories are going to go, right? Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes. and it requires like really equal, you know, uh, levels of understanding on part of everyone involved for that to be compelling. But when it is compelling, it's very compelling because there's something very human about being fascinated by what's possible within a system like this. Mm. 
And I wonder if that's the mystique that gets dispelled when one feels like you've beaten it. Because I think that's the, you know, I'm not amazing at these games, but I have had um, long, you know, uh, sort of compulsions with regard to them, um, whether that's, say, the Spire or others. But I also, I, my, I have had the common experience of, like, getting to the point where, like, I feel done, even if I'm not actually done, because I understand that I can't ever be actually done. But I, and obviously the developers can offer more specific, longer-term, you know, uh, mm. sort of uh, targets to chase in terms of difficulty modes or achievements or something. Yes, but I always think, well, why would I make it more difficult for myself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas I think actually, like, I, I think a lot about like, I think a, a, like a, a pretty, you know, default image for me of my like teenage years is walking into the the room where my dad's computer was and he would be playing Free Cell. And he was not chasing new achievements in Free Cell or a different ending to Free Cell. He was just resolving Free Cell <laughs> as a matter of habit, a bit like how I do the New York Times crossword every day. Yes, like, I think I think this is my problem with these games is that I'm not necessarily able to make the kind of mental shift of gears to put myself in a space where I want to spend time primarily with myself. <laughs> like right. uh, like I, I enjoy patience and you know or solitaire as it's called but, but you know I'll I'll play that when I don't have anything else to do. Uh, and I want to occupy myself in a sort of uh, low level cognitive uh, occupational way where I'm maybe it's, it's even meditative perhaps I'm in an mm. airport I want to kill some time and that, that is an enjoyable way to do it whereas I feel like when I sit down in front of my PC uh, and I, I you know boot up a game through Steam I want to be entertained <laughs> you know it's I, I feel like um, I'm not there to spend time with myself uh, as much mm-hmm as in other uh, other pastimes. And maybe that's why I just I don't quite jibe with a lot of the deck building games because they are about ultimately even though they have all this kind of this layer of distraction on top of them, slay the spire, you know, with the, the, the different, you know, creatures stabbing each other or whatnot and what's the is it Monster Train? Yeah, that's the one I was wasn't brave enough to try and remember the title of a few minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that is uh, you know that has a, a a beautiful and evocative visual layer attached to it, and that tricks me into thinking that it is uh, it is it is there to entertain me, whereas in fact it is more akin to patience, where it is something I should be doing to entertain myself. Yeah, and I, I mean, maybe all games are that at a certain point. I, I think something this made me think of is I broke Marvel Snap for myself after that being a really habitual time sink for me for quite a while. Uh, obviously, it's a, it's a competitive card game, but I think it actually has a lot of similar qualities to this in that it's so breezy and anonymous that you really are, you know, the 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 other players it's plucking from the ether for you to go up against are just, you know that like you know you're passing like ships in the night or in that case that one time wasting their time in a kind of (laughs) really aggressive way that they've subsequently patched out um but i broke that game for myself because for a while i was caught up in interest fascination with its systems with its deck building with its meta and the various ways to build things 
And then I got a card that changed the way I played the game, and I couldn't stop playing it that way. And there's a card uh, mm. based on the character Agatha Harkness in that game, and she is like one of the like a you know a kind of uh, witch characters in the Marvel universe, and is always very controlling. And I think they did something very funny with that card, and it's really interesting how it broke it for me. So the conceit with Agatha Harkness in Marvel Snap is she will start the game in your deck in your hand obviously and when she is in your hand she plays the game for you you can't do anything she plays she chooses the cards she plays them and um uh and then is she any good well this is the thing that became a really fun little challenge because you can it will basically the it will make a valid move with what's available to it so you can then layer other cards on top of it, like cards that are guaranteed to show up on certain turns, that are guaranteed to be a cost a certain amount. And so what I, you know, and I had built this little combo, which was about getting a card out in turn three that destroys your highest value card, which will almost certainly be Agatha Harkness. Uh, you can kind of force that to be the case, which means she's removed from your deck, which means you can then play. And then playing the card that resurrects things from your graveyard, basically to kind of pull her back in later because she's very high powered. Um, But this is basically a deck that plays itself and it either works or it doesn't. When it works, it's very funny because it's a very funny way to win a game or it doesn't. The other thing it does is if Agatha Harkness is in your deck, you get like card specific upgrade currencies at the end of a match and it's random, but not if she's in the deck. If she's in the deck, she always gets the currency for herself. That's kind of the joke. She will, and there's even a voice line for it. She will just hoard the currency for herself. And so that one card, it's, 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 I think it's supposed to be a gimmick, but I got really into it because it meant that I would just load up, the, if I'd have like two minutes waiting for a bus or something, and I would load the game and just throw that deck at the world to see what happened. And it narrowed all of the game's meta systems and economies down to a single point, which was, I'm just, I can now only upgrade this one card forever. <laughs> and then something about that almost exposed was that moment of like, oh, I can kind of see through the whole thing now. Like, it's all this. This is just the ad absurdum version of it. And I think that is a reductive position to some extent, but I did end up like playing that way for a little while and then just putting the game down forever. It's kind of funny. And I kind of love that I got there via a joke in the game itself. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that shows some foresight on the part of the devs that they, I mean, they've characterized that exploit in a particularly... In a way which shows a lot of reflection, I think. Yeah, right. But then, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I guess I, I find it very difficult when, once I've worked out the most exploity way of doing something, I find it very difficult to put that away, which is why and another reason why I prefer these games to be contextualized as a component of, uh, say, an RPG, because those RPGs usually find some pretext to force you to change whatever synergy you're currently using. Um, and it's, it's like in, in Kinmaker, you know, you end up you know, being driven out of the swamp area and you end up in the, the mountains with the dwarves and you, you know, have to start your deck all over again and the cards that would, were available to you before are no longer available to you. So you literally have to learn an, an, a new pattern to, or you know, the, a new set of cards and, and the kinds of things that you can use them to do. And that's the only way that I think I can. I, I need to be forced, really, to to change my ways. Mm. Um, 
otherwise uh i i just make the game uninteresting to myself by by using the the cheapest possible tactics yeah same and i think it's it's sort of i i I think it's one of those things to put in the kind of like i respect anyone who can has the (laughs) like the wherewithal to maintain interest for a really long time because they have that kind of drive to keep exploring these systems but i do find myself almost like rotated back out by games like this but i do really want to try balatro actually i think it sounds i've got a few long train journeys coming up this weekend and i think it sounds like good steam deck fodder oh yeah absolutely you'll definitely get a lot you know a lot of pleasure out of it whether you keep on going with it or not have you been playing a game you've already played in a new way to refresh it (laughs) i was gonna say it is actually a fairly good segue from the previous thing so yeah the thing i've been playing a lot of lately and it's really the only thing i've been playing i would have been playing lots of hell divers i suspect but I sort of made my peace with its server issues and just went, you know what, I'll come back to this when it works, basically. Um, and I think it does now, but I haven't played as much of that as I'd like. Although I've been, I've been, I've been playing it a little bit, and um, the I think the recurring experience of Helldivers for me is playing Helldivers and going, God, this game's really good, out loud to whoever I'm playing with while playing it. Um, but the another game that's very good that I have put a lot of time into lately is Baldur's Gate 3. And I know we talked about it plenty on the podcast, but... I've been playing in a very different way because I have been, I am now 45 hours into an honor mode playthrough. And so honor mode, if you're unaware, is the hardest difficulty setting um, in that they give, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of tweaks there in terms of like the overall difficulty of the game, but also crucially like the big encounters and the boss fights have extra mechanics and there's a lot more going on. Oh, and I the, see, I thought it was just an Iron Man mode. Where there's there's no oh oh so they make it more difficult and it's, they prevent you from saving yes wow. so it's That's um, bold. so it's, <laughs> it's it's significantly more difficult and um the you are only allowed one save and there is no uh loading it <laughs> basically short of you know obviously like uh, it's you know you quit on exit you save on exit so there is no going back ever um there's no going back if your party is ever completely wiped um the game fails and you are given two options delete that save or have that save converted into a custom difficulty which kind of it's called like a dishonored save at that point so you've <laughs> like the save is like you can keep playing if you're really invested you want us to get to the story end of the story or whatever you can keep playing on that save um but it will not count as an honor mode run from that point um, it uses, it keeps, it basically converts it. They have a custom difficulty setting where you can manually configure what elements of difficulty you want. It basically converts it to a custom difficulty game. Um, but if you beat the game in honor mode, uh, or if you get to the, you know, the end of act three and any of its endings in honor mode, it's a really basic thing. You get gold dice. <laughs> That's it. That's what you get. And I just <laughs> like, uh, from then on for any subsequent run, if you want, you can have gold dice rather than blue or purple or whatever color um and um but i really i think in another game that would be like okay sure i'm not usually the sort of person who necessarily goes hunting for the big achievements but i think it's a really really it's it's a great i think it's a great demonstration of how systematically robust and interesting Baldur's gate 3 is as a game that it sustains this like it's it's worthy of this right like and what it does, and so I'm playing this playthrough at the moment, which I'm really enjoying because partly because I'm a little less attached to it in terms of immersion or in terms of like the story, although I am kind of attached to it because I'm playing it to win. I am taking, it's like, 
that thing that you might feel, I think I said previously when I was talking about Bosgate is that, you know, it is like a kind of lavish D and D campaign that's been constructed for you that you're allowed to cheat at. You're allowed to load a save, etc. And mm. obviously in this, you're not allowed to load a save. You are, you know, asked to be honorable in that particular way and own the outcome of certain events. But you are making this big investment. So you are going to min max the fuck out of it. You are going to, you know, it really encourages you to read the descriptions of bosses and figure out a plan and strategize. And if beating some, if you beat someone in a way that is unfair, like good, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like you're playing in a way that I think would be quite antisocial at the actual D and D table because you Mm. are trying to break the encounters so that you win. But that's actually <laughs> is that really the really only fun? way that they are winnable? I I don't think it's the only way that they're winnable. I mean, there are people on YouTube and you know elsewhere in the Battlegate community winning the game, beating the game in insane ways. Like someone uh, someone recently beat the game despite having a mod made for them that forces every dice roll in every circumstance to be a one. <laughs> like people okay. are doing people are stunting on the game in some really interesting ways, and that's in honor mode as well. Like in some really interesting ways. But what it does is it means that you, I really, I like a lot of things about it. I think, I think one thing it exposes is act one is really scary. Act one is full of moments where you can just fucking die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, hmm. and that's actually quite true of the general, like level one, level two about D and D experience in fifth edition. And then I'm at a point now where I'm racing through act two I'm on the way to level nine. And like, I figured out my shit. I've got a lot of good items for how I want to play. And like, I am like leaning in to like, here's how I'm going to win this game. So my main character is a, like I went for a bard because I think you need a really strong face character, someone, because there are fights you can absolutely talk your way through in spectacular ways and avoiding a fight. Really good idea, right? Like if you can, Mm -hmm. if you can get past an encounter. Um, And then the rest of the team is this, like I rotate characters in and out a bit, but it's this like, hit squad of very custom engineered murderers who are there to win fights in the most unfair way possible. So I have like a really amped up Karlak with a lot of, I've done every trick I know in that game to get gear and respec options and stuff like that to kind of amp up strength just so that she can pick up and throw people a lot, not to Ooh. kind of exploit bugs in the speedrunner sense, but because occasionally there's a like, lot of pits in that game. There's a lot of pits in that game. And like, sometimes I don't want loot as much as I want to not die in this fight. And so someone's getting thrown, you know, like, or it's like having like, you know, throwing like a haste spore or taking a haste potion to give her extra actions, having her run around a fight, throwing everyone into a pile in the middle so that I can then use some scrolls to like throw a bunch of fireballs on them. <laughs> like it's like, it's, it's, it's a different, it feels very like D and D in the sense of like, yeah, technically I can do this, but it then leans so much harder into all the things about that game that are um, really interestingly systematic in different ways. Like I'm not doing some of the stuff that I f- personally, I find feels a little exploity, like what's called barrel mancy where you, pick up every explosive barrel in the game and just keep them in a bag somewhere so that you can then, you know, particularly have bosses that you have to actively aggro. You can like surround them in explosive barrels before the fight starts yeah. and stuff like that. But it lets you do all that shit. Like there's a fight in, I won't my you know, the, the no, no real spoilers coming. You haven't played Bard's Gate yet, but there's a fight in an inn. that's a really significant fight that if you lose, it has major story consequences. 
and also involves protecting an NPC who absolutely will do stupid things. And I spent time before that fight doing things like building staircases out of boxes between otherwise difficult to get between parts of the tavern so that characters, not just myself, but NPCs could path more easily between key locations, which was like kind of fun in a weird way. And like, it looks weird because I've made it out of boxes. But in my mind, that's me as a player at the table saying, I actually want us to prepare for this by like, repairing these broken stairs or something like that right right yeah yeah. that sort of thing and then there are other moments where i think one of the reasons i'm enjoying it so much is you just have to live with things like i am playing a like a lot of the time my my default as i think it is for a lot of people is towards being pretty pretty radiantly good in these games you know because it's very easy to reach for the quick load button if you get a bad outcome or someone doesn't like what you tell them and it's also the case that like you know, if you're not so worried about the outcome of a fight, then maybe you do turn down a quest reward for a bit of, you know, kudos with the villagers or whatever. I'm not fucking doing that. I need all the money I can get. Pay me. <laughs> also, there's like, there's a, there's a moment in, in Act One, there's an encounter uh, that can be quite scary with a bunch of harpies, and they are kind of um, singing their siren song to a child who is on the seashore. And I went to do that encounter knowing it was going to be tough. And I was kind of like, I had a plan, I went in with a plan, which was to use a silence, create a bubble of a silence spell because the game is incredibly internally consistent. If you use a silence spell, harpy song doesn't work. Um, So um, I was like, I'll use this to kind of prevent myself getting harpied. I'll kind of load up some other kind of resistance to charmed and other effects like that and go for it. And I initiate, and you also do a lot of things like sneaking and trying to initiate fights on your own terms, like surprising mm. enemies rather than rather than letting the cutscene play out, like kind of gazumping it. And I threw down this big bubble of silence on top of the the little child who was in, enraptured by the harpy song, rather than initiate the cutscene. And uh, what this caused to happen was the for two things happened: the child could no longer hear the harpy song because it was in the silence bubble. So the child was no longer enthralled by the harpies. It, this act aggroed the harpies because, of course, it did. But the only character in the initiative order was the child, who was then at that point not flagged as friendly to the harpies. So the harpies then instantly, on their turn, ripped that child to pieces. And <laughs> oh there was <laughs> it didn't work. I was I was safely on a cliffside nearby, going like, "Well, that didn't work." <laughs> like, um, and then obviously I could then win the fight because the harpies had all helpfully kind of gone into the bubble of the silence. Half of them had, and then won the fight, which could otherwise be a run-ending fight. That one, fairly handily. But it was like I have. I'm just. I I live with this now. That happened. There is no. There's no follow up on that. The people who <laughs> there's no reward for waiting for me for getting that right. I I'm not at that point. Maybe I was only a couple hours into the campaign, so I could have gone back. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna restart for that. Right. So you're just, you're just living with that one. <laughs> like there are characters missing now that have died who I'm like, oh, fuck it. Well, okay, fine. Like, um, like, and then, and it makes certain, like I'm playing, this is also a Dark Urge run through, which is the, no spoilers, but it's the, it's the playthrough where your player character really wants to murder people. <laughs> and you will occasionally have to do wisdom saves to make sure they don't do that at a really bad time. And so I have this bedtime ritual in the sense of long rests in that game now, because you don't know what cutscene is going to trigger when you do a long rest, but you play the game enough. And I've, you know, I've got more than 200 hours in Baldur's Gate 3 now. 
you get a sense of like when those things are likely to happen. And so before bed, my main character puts on a necklace that gives me advantage on wisdom saves, puts on a hat, he's my bedtime hat, that gives me expertise, proficiency in wisdom saves. And I go into turn-based mode and Shadowheart casts uh, like, uh, a sp- uh, like a buff on me to give me temporary like plus one d4 to saving rolls just in case that night's cutscene is one where i'm going to fucking murder someone in the camp <laughs> and like it's just for some reason i find that really charming even though it's gamey it's like okay i've got it like if i forget any part of my ritual i might fuck up a 45 hour run of this game um yeah it's 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 really good like i don't think i would recommend it to like anyone and actually what it's got me nostalgic for is like after this succeed or fail i want to do a i kind of want to do a very different run through the game like i want to i want to do like a pure story run through maybe install the mod that takes away the party size limit and just do like a, the gangs all here run um and approach it very very differently and take some of this pressure off because it, it can feel gamey but i think it's like but it's i think it's telling that what i'm saying is like this is me beating Baldur's Gate. Instead, it's like, I'm going to do it like this, and then I'll just do it again, <laughs> like a different way. Because, right. yeah. But what are you going to do uh, if you uh, do get wiped? Will you do a Dishonored save? No. I will. I will. Like, I'm not attached enough, really. Like, I... <laughs> oh, man, there is something I want to explain, but I can't because it is a spoiler. But, like, there is a thing I'm not doing that I really... Like, I literally... I almost considered picking my romance option purely on the basis of a benefit, I think it'll get me an act three. And that was like the level of like, I'm not really making like role play decisions here. I am just trying to survive <laughs> this game. Right. I, had a, I had some really like, cause there are tricks you can do, but it, it teaches you some really interesting things. Like, cause if you, you have to get party wiped to actually die. And so it mm. means you actually use mechanics like running away from fights, for example. Mm-hmm. But also I will, I, there's, I had a fight, just today on my lunch break and it's a boss battle i know but i hadn't done an honor mode before and i looked at the legendary action is what they've called when they're given the boss a new thing they can do and it's like oh this is like potentially run ending so i'm going to plan around this and it's a boss that's got huge resistances to tons of different types of damage hmm. and so i just took a party and i was like i think i can do this with a party of three so i'm going to send one of these party members back to stand fucking miles away who they're not going to, I'm going to try and beat this with three. And if I can't and everyone dies, that party member, the one that survives can go back to camp and resurrect everyone through withers, the skeleton who lives in your camp. Right. So like just, but that means that like, I'm sort of gambling on not, um, you know, can I do this with three? Like you're a bit safer than it sometimes appears, but you know, I'll give you an example. There's a gold themed boss in act two, whose legendary action is, who's got a whole mechanic anyway about losing pieces of this massive golden armor that she's wearing. And every time she loses a piece of armor in honor mode on her next turn, she will do this AOE thing where she tries to turn everyone within four meters of her, um, which is quite a big radius into a gold statue. Hmm. And that gold statue is an instant death condition. It is. If you fail a con save, you are a statue now. And the only way to break out of it is if someone in your party has held on to a particular potion from the Underdark in Act 1. Oh, Christ. Like, and uh, I don't even know if you can resurrect from that. So it's potentially like, I could potentially lose, I don't know, Lazel or Karlak here. And so the start of that fight, which takes place in a kind of quite a tall building, 
was everyone spaced the fuck out. No one stand next to anyone else in case this actually happens. Start the fight and then just engineer a scenario where Karlak can throw that per- that boss out of a window. <laughs> right. And force them to spend the rest of the fight running up like <laughs> endless lights of stairs to get to you because you're just not going to take the chance, right? It's like, I'm yeah. just not going to take the chance because if I didn't, if I hadn't read the description of that ability, I could have easily thought one of sometimes the way you've been in a fight is everyone dogpile the boss and just beat them to death instantaneously, which often does work. Um, and in that case, they've they've planned for that. You suddenly find yourself like you fail four con saves. You, your forty hour save is gone. Like, so you are you are allowing yourself a level of precognition where you're sort of studying the things that you're going to encounter and, and then in advance working out strategies to defeat them. Yeah, because you. I can, mean, you've played it before for one thing, but I mean, obviously the, these new uh, these new boss moves are unique, right? Yeah, but the the way everything in the game works is if you right click it and go examine, like that all the information is there. Oh, right. So okay. you can like in game scroll down and it will be like, this character has legendary action, this, and you can read it. And so it is open information unless you didn't know something was going to be a boss fight. And so it teaches this sort of way of playing, which is like, you know, a bit slower and more methodical. And you do kind of cheese things, I suppose. But I think at that point, it doesn't feel like cheesing to me. It just no. feels like playing a different game, really. Yeah, it's a it's a strategy game where you you're allowed to understand the pieces that are at your disposal. I think that's fine. And then just you, sort of use this huge possibility space to try and fuck them over, basically. Do you have like a, a a narrative ending that is desirable in this context? It's not a narrative run, but I mean, it, it, did, are you working towards a particular ending? Are you just trying to hit the credits, basically? Um, yes, and but I'm I'm I want my gold dice. That's why I'm doing this, and so. <laughs> I'm making a lot of decisions based on things I know are possible in the end game. It is possible to skip the last battle. Um, and so I'm going to try and do that. I know some people think that's like not quite honorable. Like there's a way of actually getting the credits in act two that doesn't count towards this achievement. You have to actually get one of the act three endings, which I think is fair because they'd be skipping quite a lot of the game. Mm-hmm. But like there are tons of, a few of the companion quest finales are really spectacular, but they're off the beaten track. I don't feel like I especially need anything from them. So kind of fuck those people. <laughs> like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I'm not risking it. We're going to the end game. Right. Mm. Like, you know, and so I find that quite, it's quite, um, obviously it's very gamey in some regards, but so is a very narrative playthrough. And I find it really interesting to kind of zoom out a little bit into a bigger subject around this. I find we, we spoke previously, I think we talked about Baldscape specifically about like that strange mix of like agency and so on. And these are also quite solipsistic games. Like I'm doing this on my own. Obviously you can't play Baldscape multiplayer, but like, you know, there, these are environments where you can really tell yourself a story. You have huge agency as a player to cultivate the run, the specific run you want, the specific outcomes that you want, with specific romance partners that you want, whatever that is. And that agency can be a strange thing to have in a story that should otherwise feel immersive. And obviously, in this case, some of my immersion is broken by the fact that I'm using a lot of meta information that I, Chris, have to beat this game, right? Like from my choice of character to the skills they have to the way that I've built them and so on. But there are those moments where you make choices that are like, fuck this, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to do something selfless here. And those little moments of like selfish, craven, like expediency can feel quite um, fun. 
like as a kind of actually in this scenario would i say this selflessly noble thing like there's a moment in act one where you are basically you know told by a character who could snuff your life out in an instant go do this awful thing for me and so i said yes like in my in my first playthrough i was perfectly happy to go like no fuck you god you're not the boss of me you shan't shame me i'm a I, you know, my pride is, is, is greater than this. And my respect for my companions is greater even still. And I shan't be your puppet. And in this, I was like, I will be your puppet because <laughs> I don't know that that wouldn't wipe me here. So I, yes, I will. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure how branching this bit is, to be honest. So sure. <laughs> Atrocities it is. <laughs> I'm very good at persuasion. And I don't have that option here, but so I'll assume instead that the kind people at Larian will let me persuade my way out of the negative consequences for doing the thing you're about to get me do. Um, it's very fun. <laughs> it's very fun. Like, um, particularly getting, like, I did actually, uh, it is broadly a good playthrough because I think evil playthroughs kind of channel you in, a, in quite a limp, it are harder, I think, generally, which is the worst reason to be good. But like, like that the 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 act one thing of like the big the great big hitman level that is the, the kind of the goblin dungeon, mm. like was very funny in this mode because it was like I am not I am not dealing with anyone's shit like just like did you so uh, did you in yeah. that circumstance uh, try and do it peacefully or were you no I killed um, everyone very dishonorably <laughs> excellent so you were <laughs> this is that's how I approached it. <laughs> Like I'm the, just trying to engineer uh, stealth scenarios, which the game does not lend itself towards, really, because you have to break up your party and then move them individually, and then it 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 doesn't it struggles with that once combat is, is initiated. But uh, yeah, that was you can you can initiate combat though in ways that are very funny. Like for me, it was that where you encounter Minthara, who can be a companion. There's like a bridge over a ravine and there's a scrying eye, like, you know, yeah. alert orb going back and forth. And those are like very resistant to almost every form of damage, but you can just throw them down a hole. <laughs> Works instead. <laughs> <All right. laughs> and so, and so I had like this thing where my character who's a ranged D DPS dealer really standing kind of point late, he's gotten powerful now to the point where he's like combination of like win every persuasion check bard and just a man who owns a gun in <laughs> Like, like I, I cast gun quite a lot to solve problems. <laughs> um, but then that fight started with like, Carl uh, picks up the scrying orb, throws it down a hole. Uh, then because of the surprised initiative thing, Shadowheart boots a different goblin down the same hole. And I just use every like haste, like multiple activation thing I possibly can to have Lazel beat the boss to death before they can move and then quickly clean up. And it's not pretty. But it is like you do feel satisfied afterwards. Like, yeah, I solved that. <laughs> like the the fight against the hobgoblin, uh, draw Raglan, Um, that fight was like two like locking the doors. Two characters on the ground floor, kind of holding the line, while my character and Karlak hidden the rafters, just throwing things at them. And whenever a goblin would come up the ladder, Karlak would take that goblin and throw them off the ladder at another goblin further down. <laughs> and that just kept working <laughs> and it was great that sounds beautiful <laughs> it's great like i really like i think um i, I mean i i i think 
I mean, it's such an extraordinary game generally, but I think it will be a while before there's a game that I get both of those things out of. Like, yeah, I will play this just for the mechanics, and I will play this for the writing and the story as well. It's extraordinary the number of ways that you have played this and the length of time each one of those completely dissimilar experiences has taken you. It's Yeah, I mean, I do, because I thought that this was going to be the beginning of like a CRPG renaissance for me personally, where I would like maybe go back to the things I know, like I never finished the Pillars of Eternity series. There's, you know, and there, I'd love to replay Tides of Numenera. That remains true, but I feel like I'm stuck in a loop now where like it has been a CRPG renaissance for me, but I just played Baldur's Gate 3 over and over <laughs> <Right>. again. <laughs> Um, so I, yeah, like, and then they're going to, you know, clearly they're going to do some director's cut or some big thing eventually, and there'll be more of it. And so I don't know when I'm going to stop playing this game, honestly, perhaps never. Can I quickly plug two other games I've played? Yeah, please do. Two really small games. They're both completely free on Steam. The first game is 20 Small Mazes, Mm. uh, which is a game with 20 small mazes in it. It's just a single screen. All the mazes are sort of pasted over each other and you can shuffle them about. And each of them has like a fun twist. So like the first maze is you can fold it as though it was like a a scored piece of paper. And so you can align different parts of the maze with other parts of the maze. And then that's how you get your piece to the exit by folding and unfolding it. And there's other more interesting and and slightly meta twists to the mazes as you go throughout. But part of the pleasure of uh, it is in, in discovering them. I recommend it. And the other game uh, is called Sheepy, a short adventure, which is uh, a short adventure about a sheep, Um, or rather a stuffed toy sheep, which has been discarded uh, in in the depths of some abandoned subterranean colony, um, and it's somehow animated to life and then required to metroidvania its way uh, to some conclusion, which is very brief, but surprisingly dramatic because the because it has such a short time span the degree of escalation through all the powers you get is extremely quick <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it's remarkably gratifying because the metroidvanias i think are just uh, you know one of the hallmarks of them are backtracking crisscrossing in such a way that they often are inclined to fritter away a player's time whereas this one seems very conscious not to waste any time uh and it is, uh, it's great. I mean, it looks beautiful as well. Beautiful, really beautiful animation, pixel art. Um, the movement has this really nice kind of squeaky friction to it. Uh, it's got a great soundtrack. In fact, I think it's, I think it's been bankrolled by a YouTuber, um, which gives me a bad feeling in my tummy, to be frank, Chris. But uh, I, I think I've given them a cursory glance and I think they are like a composer. I, I think they're famous for making electronica. So nothing like overtly disquieting about them, but it is free. So if the YouTuber turns out to be a neo-Nazi or a massive dipshit at a later date, then at least you haven't given them any money. Nice. But yeah, I recommend it. Lovely. There was another thing we wanted to talk about, and that is to return to a subject of our lock-in, which if you haven't listened to was uh, about the recent series of Fargo, the TV series, and the recent series of True Detective. Um, Jamie and I talked about them at length, and I heard that Chris had an interesting take on the nature of the supernatural in True Detective Season 4, colon, Night Country. And I want to hear it. But if you're aware, if you're wary of spoilers or you just want to listen to the other podcast first, you should stop listening to this podcast now. Hi. 
thank you for setting me up in that particular way. See, so here's the thing. I listened to your, uh, you and Jamie's podcast about True Detective, and I feel like I've done something enormously self-indulgent in kind of asking for a, like a right of reply on a particular point, because <laughs> as far as I understand it, a vital part of the experience of listening to any podcast is desperately wanting to join in the conversation at some point when and not being allowed to. And I feel like I've kind of broken some hitherto like some sacred boundary here. Like I'm like, <laughs> no, no, I will be I will I will be heard on the no, subject of ghost oranges. <laughs> Had schedules allowed it, we would have uh valued your contribution to the podcast itself. And uh I was always intrigued to know what you felt about this particular season because as uh as a scholar of Lovecraft, this seem, this particular season mm. seems to have more links directly to um, uh, celestial yeah. terror. So, I, yeah, I think it was really interesting because I, I had a bit of a journey with uh, True Detective. So I will say, from listening to the discussion that you and Jamie had all up about True Detective and its arc to this point, what the first season meant to people back in 2014, was it? Mm-hmm. Um um and so on like that all very extremely resonant and like you know and i I remember you know as someone who i did you know my dissertation on on lovecraft and cosmic horror and related fantasy and i i have like a big investment in this world and i'm also quite heavily critical of it (laughs) in a lot of ways and uh it's you know it's all very complicated and tangled in my mind and also there are very specific things about that first season of true detective that i found really um sort of uh, uh, strangely kind of resonant at the time, like in that way when something gets its claws in you, and, and particularly the soundtrack, like the the use of uh, the Handsome Family as the opening song, um, so mm. Far From Any Road, hugely like this is just a personal thing, but I think like, I think my sister and I were probably the youngest people in the, the Handsome Family fan club in the early noughties when, you know, um, uh, Brett and Rennie Sparks, the husband and wife duo that uh, make up the music. Certainly the only kids in Salisbury listening to moody American Gothic. And like my sister gets the, the better story here because um, she saw them live, I think when she must've been like 15 or 16 and brought Rennie Sparks a book that I believe she had stolen from the school library titled When Animals Die. <laughs> um <laughs> Which is sick. It seems like their what thing. A sick, yeah, what a sick thing. And then gave that to her. And I think she still has it. Like, um, So that music had always been really important to me. And seeing it kind of brought into this context of like moody neo-noir take on like grounded cosmic horror through a very particular lens was very impactful. And then obviously if the kind of the misfires of the subsequent seasons, in, in my opinion, although I think they are about something that is not f- effective, and then um, with Night Country, with the new one, um, I had a journey to, with it, which I think was very, very similar to you and Jamie up to a certain point, which was, I think it starts very strong. I think it becomes very, it's very compelling. The performances are incredible. There's loads I really loved about it. I loved the way it looked. And then it started to lose me. And, and I was really following along with this point and about everything else. There's one thing I disagree about, and that's about its use of the supernatural. And I we can talk about that in some more detail. But then what happened with me and 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 talking about the show was getting to the end, feeling initially pretty ambivalent about the ending, um, feeling that it was a continuation of some of the, I think the the ways in which it 
it ties itself in knots towards the end, the way its pace falters and so on. Um, and then a day later, having a series of like aha moments where it kind of evolved into this, into two things really. One, I think something that is thematically, I really, really like and admire. Something that I think uses its source material in a way that's far more interesting than True Detective has done in the past. And in doing so, achieves this, I think, genuinely kind of hilarious suplex dumpstering of the first season. <laughs> um, where it, it, you know, more or less picks up Matthew McConaughey over its head and like WWE smashes him into a big bin and then he rolls down into a frozen lake. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> and I, it was really interesting listening to talk through that because I think I can kind of unpack that in a particular way. And I don't necessarily expect this to change your mind about the show, but I, yeah, I wanted to kind of offer a different interpretation of it. Um, sure. Just, I mean, just to, to preempt you slightly, I didn't dislike the show. I mean, I had problems with it and I didn't, I didn't buy its use of the supernatural. I thought that was incoherent, but I did like it overall and I did, did enjoy it, uh, it thematically. Yeah. And I think, and it'd be interesting because like, I think on the supernatural thing, I think it's probably the best place to start with this, which is to my mind, I think um, viewed it makes it very easy to believe that ghosts are literary, literally real, um, viewed through the lens of, like, ghosts, basically, <laughs> right? Um, and then I think it's quite restrained in unpacking, in picking that at the end, and I think some of the issues of the pacing come here, where um, the the various sort of event, like the various sort of seemingly on um unreconciled on sort of reconcilably real quote-unquote supernatural events i think in the last episode all of them are shown to be illusory or echoes of of some other memory or trauma so you know the the orange is both uh representative of evangeline navarro's mother and an orange literally falls out of a fridge at her feet. That's not a ghost that did that. That's actually an orange at that point. Almost all of its like repeated supernatural moments get a f- true physical manifestation at the end in the same episode that's about recurrence in some ways. And that to me was like the, the that was that to me was its like definitive statement of no, the ghosts aren't real. Um, Hmm. <laughs> I think it's already shown you that they have to be real at that point because you have multiple characters saying or or hearing the phrase "she's awake," uh, right. and you can't achieve that by anything other than super supernatural. Also, characters are led to places that they couldn't possibly have found without the use of ghosts. I don't agree, but we should unpack kind of why (laughs) like um and and so and and maybe maybe to something i think there's a so uh, and i'll frame this i won't kind of bury the lead on this i think there's i think the lens through which it starts to make more it's a bit becomes a bit more coherent and more interestingly enigmatic with that stuff is not really the um supernatural or occult horror lens which i know it invites but more specifically the um cosmic horror lens and more specifically to be explicit a feminist lens like those are the ones in which it i think becomes really interesting and um and crucially and there's a lot you can say about that like true detective as a whole its successes cosmic horror is not about its little allusions to actual 
like literary cosmic horror. It's about uh, partly the structure of its material, which is often about like Call of Cthulhu. The story is not about people discovering and fighting Cthulhu. It's about someone assembling documentation that implies that Cthulhu is real. That is the actual action of that story. And then in the deeper kind of layers of it, yes, there is description of action, but crucially, almost all the horror takes place on someone's desk. And so it's always like True Detective, I think, has been quite effective at kind of mirroring that in the way that like layers of information intersect. And Night Country really makes a big point of that, Some, a very unsubtle point at times with like the spiral pattern evidence laid out on the floor the emphasis on asking questions, staring at data, kind of trying to pass a pattern in something that might not have one, et cetera. Um, but it also allows for the existence of this kind of like strand of information that is, and this is not totally unlike the other seasons as well, much closer to memory or uh, emotion or uh, things that are unspoken basically or unspeakable. And, um, to make sure that I'm kind of landing the point. The, and then that is highly connected to basically dreams and memory in an initial sense. And does that make I, I don't want to kind of just go off on one totally without kind of validating that that's not an insane thing I've just said. No, so far I can yeah. I can see that, yeah. Right. And so the the thing that there's, there's certain strands of like cosmic horror or cosmic horror adjacent stuff that I love because uh, it can, and I think... I'll put it this way. Uh, Lovecraft tells on himself in ways that are very fucking obvious. And, you know, there've been multiple states many, many times about Lovecraft's attitude on race and women, particularly that man tells on himself all the time in some pretty unsubtle ways. He also tells on himself in a ton of very subtle ways as well. Like the things that uh, Lovecraft and other cosmic horror authors can presuppose as cosmic level unknowables are sometimes just the lived experience of people you're not like. And um, and that is, that is to put a finer point on it, the mechanism by which Night Country completely subverts the first season, I think, in a really interesting way. And, and I, to quote Janie, almost like literally cheered at one point when it does that bit of quotation, because um, the, like, it's almost like, um, <laughs> it's almost like switch from like, there are things man was not supposed to know to, there are things men don't know, which is a subtle, <laughs> yeah, a subtle but really important pivot. And um, I think there is a point where it becomes it's where that's very much what it's dramatizing. But uh, a lot of this for me, uh, and there's a few different lenses I put on this, is like um, come down to the discovery and interrogation of um, Raymond Clark at the end of the show, who is the researcher who was in love with Annie Kay, who hid in the ice caves beneath the base is kind of discovered at the end of the show. And it's kind of, and actually very quickly, it kind of explains the whole thing in, in through one lens, at least to some extent, to the extent that he understands it. And um, I think the, the show is strong and I could, I don't know if do a whole hour on this like the show's strongest moment in in i think dramatically is is when it finally shows an ek's murder that sequence is horrible and it is it is hard to watch and it is also i think really integral to this idea that like it is group masculine violence 
by a group of people who are otherwise framed variously as like scholarly or monastic or peaceful and they are previously purely only victims in some ways like naked in the ice etc and they are shown to be capable of this vicious but also mundane in its viciousness act of violence against this a woman who's rightfully angry about the thing that they're covering up and and he is complicit in that as well, Raymond Clark, right? And yes. then and he lies about it as well, which I yeah. thought was I thought that was a moment of brilliance, which recalled some of the ways in which the interrogation scenes are used in the first series to yeah. great ironic effect. Where, you know, even even in extremists, he does not admit his culpability in the murder right. of Annie. Exactly that, and that's I think the really key point of the show, and the thing I really enjoyed about that ending is so he and then he is described as another character again in a fairly arch kind of stylized way as he's in the night country now. And if you understand the night country to be basically the domain of unspeakable uh, feelings and griefs and source wells of, of outrage and, you know, evil, frankly, in terms of the violence against women that the show depicts, then he is a person who is quite literally in the drama of the show, uh, force it, it sort of uh, deeply exposed to the to the undeniable truth of the violence of the system in which he operates as a person, both in terms of his profession, in terms of the specific acts he does, all of it. And that's what's under the ice. That is what is literally under the surface of Ennis. Like, and that's kind of goes without, kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's flatly the case. He is trapped in that environment. Um, quite, you know, for his own protection, he hides in there for a while. He is in the night country. And then when he emerges, he does sort of lie and assemble. And that interrogation scene where he's the disheveled man being kind of interrogated by two cops, that's the important mirror of the first season, I think. And that's why it's so important that it's him that says the line, time is a flat circle and repeats it. And I don't, and I think it's really important that that is almost immediately dismissed. Because that in, in, in the, you know, in the first season, that can be part of like, Matthew McConaughey's kind of like whistling nihilism that we never quite Ah, kind of get to shrug off. Whereas Mm. in this, it is openly and explicitly an act of self-defensive bollocks. (laughs) Okay. That, that really works for me, that explanation, because I thought that was a cheap way to align the uh, emerging mythos of night country with the earlier and contradictory mythos of true detective. But what you're saying is that is, uh, he is echoing something which is intentionally there to be discredited. Yes. And okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think it's, it's what it's to say is that effectively what that line means in context is uh, it's, it's that nihilistic point. Nothing means anything. It's also, we can't change the way time works, right? True detective has previously contended with often pretty awful men contending with the unbeatable realities of time and it presupposes that these systems that they exist within are so monumental and so terrifying so much bigger than they are that there's nothing you could possibly do about it which is the cosmic horror perspective and what and what i think night country says is like no you can you just cannot face them and um and and then you know it's and crucially like do they (laughs) I mean, is that is? Do you think that's borne out by the by the uh, uh, efficacy of the investigation? I because I feel like 
it ends in a similar place where the cops resolve their crime but do not really confront the larger crime sort of so the then this kind of brings me to the the other thing i was going to add to this which is so the show true detective all up very very interested in dream cities that's where i was going to go with this um the first season references carcosa quite a bit which is from a I believe an Ambrose Beer's story originally, but also recurs in The King in Yellow as a kind of is referenced repeatedly by uh, Robert Chambers in that story. And cosmic horror and, and dream fiction and the kind of related kind of philosophical fiction is full of these sort of like dreaming cities, basically, or these lost cities lost to time. And Ennis is, is pretty explicitly that. Like it's a city trapped in this kind of these days of night, this dream. Mm. It has that quality to it. But I think the, the key to unlocking kind of what uh, Night Country is doing is understanding that like there has been another act of like very, um, of I think brilliant subversion of that trope in a feminist context or even just a kind of, um, you know, humane context in, in the past. Like the text that's important to the end of True Detective season four isn't um, The King in Yellow or Carcosa or something like that. It's the ones who walk away from Omalas. Oh, mm, okay, yeah. Like, and, you know, and, like, I feel like um, by Ursula Le Guin, like, and that, and her, like, that notion of this, and I think that is basically adapted here. Like, I would kind of describe True Detective Season 4 as, like, a bit of Mountains of Madness in terms of the setting and in terms of that idea of there always being kind of layers of time and and kind of... Um, uh, a fathomless sort of mystery beyond the one that we're experiencing, but crucially, um, Omalas, because that is, you know, there is that line. I, I, I'll paraphrase like at the end, you know, uh, and if you're not aware of the, 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 the short story, those who walk away from Omalas, the spoilers, I guess that is about a festival that takes place in this kind of dream city of Omalas every year. And the people there live a fairly utopian life. And that part is, is I think, inverted in the show, right? It goes from being a summer festival to being this kind of brutal winter uh, sort of, you know, um, like period. But uh, crucially, the town of Omalas can exist because of the suffering of a child who lives in the depths of the city. And there must always be a suffering child. And... Uh, the point is that at a certain point, the inhabitants of Omalas come to know this and it kind of accept it and treat it as unchangeable. But there are those who walk away from Omalas, those who leave. And um, and this, the story, Omalas ends the same way by basically saying, like, there are those who leave. They may not exist anymore. We don't might not know if they ever existed. And that, like, you have Calarice's character, Evangeline, from the start of the show say, I wish I could walk away from this constantly. Like, in almost yeah. every episode, she's like, I wish I could walk away from this. Or stop existing, the, even. Or stop existing, which is what her sister does. And at the end, that is what happens. And I think that's, like, it's, like, the the thing that she steps away from is that cycle of, of like, direct contention with these forces that are otherwise at work. And that lens, I think, also really reflects really nicely for Pryor, for young, like, Peter Pryor's character as well, um, who is the only, who is a man who is kind of fucked for life, as it's kind of put, by what he does, but also is a character who takes direct action off the path um, when he shoots his dad in the head. Mm. The, you could go into quite a lot of, like, the significance of shooting people in the head <laughs> in this show. Um but like he he is kind of removed from that path 
And there's lots of interesting mirroring with that, that like he has fallen into the night country before he's fallen into the ice before previously, it was his dad that kind of rebirthed him into that world. He becomes a cop, etc. It's not subtle with this. And then he is the one who then puts his dad back in the ice at the end. And, and like, uh, yeah, there's, I, that's the area where I could just go on and on and on. And, but it's also why I think it's so important that the cop, the show is so ambivalent about cops as well. Like that, it's a very blurry line. Everyone's deeply unprofessional. It's not really a show about cops in some ways because it's just attention everywhere. And I think it's because it's it's taking the stand that like actually there isn't a huge distinction between the violence inherent to the police in this context. There's two kinds of police. I think that's important as well. Like, and then there's the kind of the corpo security element of it, and it's all one kind of. Um, it's all one thing rather than a specific comment on any given part of it. Anyway, I've rambled a lot about True Detective, but these were the thoughts bubbling up in the course of listening to that previous exploration. Is, is that resonant with your experience of it? I don't want to just monologue. Like that's, no, it you know. really is. Yeah, and also um, it, it's also resonant with uh, what I felt about the conclusion of which uh, allows the characters to redeem the, uh, the sort of nightmarish devil figure Whereas in previous seasons of Fargo and in uh, other Coen Brothers films, uh, there is there's this unkillable nihilistic figure who dispenses justice and cannot be uh, denied, or dispenses injustice, and he is a manifestation of the injustness of the universe. And in in the end of the latest season, um, just some very nice Minnesotans uh, <laughs> diffuse him essentially by feeding him pancakes. Uh, which I feel is just like a, a nice repudiation of yeah. that kind of nihilism. And um, to hear you, your uh, gloss of the way that Night Country works, it it is also, to some extent, a, a diffusal of that blank nihilism of the first season of True Detective. Although, I would say that the first season of True Detective also somewhat diffuses itself like i think the arc that matthew mcconaughey's character goes on in that is to realize that not everything is as uh, pointless and inhumane and cruel as he came to believe and at the end it's really the friends you make along the way <laughs> that matter and then they go off woody harrelson pushing his his chair into you know a beautiful friendship and i, I so, so i, I kind of think it all it has touched on that but it, certainly in the way that the the the, the contingent of fans of the first season of True Detective who are angry about the latest season, certainly in the way that they have built up uh, Matthew McConaughey's philosophy as like some sort of indelible truism, I think the new season does uh, does effectively smash that. Yeah, I think I think if I think because I agree with something, I think there's something interesting about this that I find really interesting, which is um, I think when certain kinds of fiction and, and this, it's certainly like true with a lot of like, you know, books and comics and things that I've loved over the years when they are pretty ambivalent about where they, when they kind of have their cake and eat it with having, for example, incredibly objectionable philosophies espoused by otherwise quite compelling men, basically you, there is that sort of sense of inviting a fandom that takes that stuff seriously. And I don't think, for example, that every every male character in Night Country is like a sniveling baby there to be mocked, which I think was the critique leveled against it. I don't think that's true at all, actually. Um, by by but, whom? Not by us. 
No, not by you, Crucially, okay, I say, right, but right. as in, I, I'm talking about the, the grognard position there, but like that was the notion that like, there is no, there's nothing for men in this, right? That angle. And it's like, no, um, that's not the case, right? Like actually they're quite, you know, they're as complex, it's as complex a depiction as, as any other character in the show. It's just less interested in romanticizing certain positions, right? And actually it's quite engaged in de-romanticizing uh, certain elements of like the lives led by all of the characters in that in that hmm. program, maybe with the exception of Fiona Shaw's character. And I think there's, you know, um, she is sort of as close as the show gets to a guide, basically, hmm. um, as the person who's basically the ferryman, uh, ferrywoman between kind of domains. I don't, you know, and and, and also I think the vehicle for its strange dangling connection to the first season which is something i didn't pick up until i read about it afterwards like the fact that her deceased husband is matthew mcconaughey's dad oh shit no i didn't realize right, that. yeah surname cole that was the you know hmm. that's the clue and then you know uh, now now reduced to man who shows up and points into the ice <laughs> you know but uh <laughs> yeah like but the sort of like the the sort of flowing together of all of those characters as like creatures on the boundary of that particular deeper awareness of like uh inhumanity basically but i i I think that's what i find compelling about it is that sense of like what lies beyond what we're contending with through those nihilist positions is grounded quite literally in cruelty and inhumanity that people are capable of rather Mm. than treating that as a cosmic inevitability, which I think is the hallmark of weaker fiction, basically. Good thoughts. Good thoughts. Talking of the um, Ursula Le Guin story, did you read uh, the recently released short story, Why Don't We Just Kill the Kid in the Amelis Hole? (laughs) No, I didn't. Isabel J. Kim. It's brilliant. Awesome. And uh, definitely horribly resonant with many of the terrible things that are going on in the world today i think but it's i won't say anything more about it the title does give you a hint as uh, (laughs) yeah uh, that is um a spoiler warning and also a trigger warning so uh yeah go into it with some caution but it is uh it's a powerful powerful short story awesome well thank you for allowing me to talk about that (laughs) like it's a pleasure um, i uh yeah because i came away like for then feeling like sort of I'm really, I will say this, I'm now really excited for what uh, Issa Lopez does with with True Detective next, because I think this was like, I love it when um, the things that are compelling about cosmic horror level up a bit like this, and sort of uh, a good example of the form. So excited to see where that happens. Very much so. Yeah. The ghosts are still bullshit though, Chris. Yeah. I don't think so. I think if, I think do that dream <laughs> thing. I think it makes it works, but you know, I also agree. I agree that like it's not. Maybe that's the interesting tension in it, where like I think ideas wise it works, but the execution is that of a jump horror ghost film. Yeah, I think and, that's the, yeah. that's the point of, of dissonance that I, I object to. I don't re- I don't have a problem with ghosts being introduced either as metaphor or as real things per se. Uh, I just think the the way they operated, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. why are ghosts scary, Chris? 
Like, what's in it for them? <laughs> is they the question. Are, they're that, our own traumas. I hate to kind of Flanagan all over this, but yeah. Why the the question of why ghosts do what they do is the problem with all ghost fiction and the fact that ghosts aren't real. So I mean, ghost fiction has to <laughs> has a problem with that as well. But like, you can have ghost stories in which the ghosts are like ethereal echoes, which are like barely intelligible to those who are still alive and yes you can absolutely have like vengeful specters whose death was so hateful that it has somehow psychically soured the very environment in which they passed and like fine you know if we're gonna have ghosts those are the ones that are at least internally consistent but like I, I find it hard when we have ghosts who, for no real reason at all, can only communicate through visual metaphors and jump scares. <laughs> like that just seems like that's an odd See, way for them to pick. Like if they can manifest themselves and they can point at you and scream, they can probably just say, "Yeah, go down there, mate." You don't need to create a, a set of ghostly footprints for people to follow. Anyway, I think, but but ghosts are metaphors. Like, and, and like, you know, trauma can manifest as, you know, kind of cryptic patterns of behavior or as sudden moments of deep terror, right? Both of those things are emotionally true. Mm. I think I'll say this, I'll say this on the subject of true detective night country and ghosts, which I I really loved about it, which is obviously, in my opinion, the ghosts in that show are very much there to represent the fact that Jodie Foster's character, Callie Reese's character are, uh, and, um, yeah, Evangeline's younger sister uh, are those people are haunted by things in their past, right? It's as simple as that. It's as straightforward as that. It's it's what ghosts are most typically used for. And then there's that moment later when all of the things that have happened to a prior have happened. And Fiona Shaw says to him, paraphrasing, you're haunted as fuck, my boy. <laughs> you're haunted forever now. What you've done, you are literally, you got ghosts now, my, my guy. And who are you going to call? maybe a therapist, but you probably couldn't even tell them. So good fucking luck. But we never see the ghost of Hank Pryor, his dad, show up to no. bully him or or give him a big boo. We just know that for the rest of his life, when he walks into the room to give like Danvers a folder or coffee or something, and he looks really, you know, and he's lying awake at night at the end of it, we know he's seeing ghosts. Like we don't have to be showing them at that point. We know how this works. And I think that's the key is like, you know, he he like he does something kind of heroic, both to save Danvers' life, potentially, but also, you know, I mean, not to get you lost in it, but like the Salal researchers are sent out naked into the ice to confront the reality of kind of the, the thing they did. And it's not a surprise that they die <laughs> for physical reasons, but also they die in a sense of like shocking confrontation with the cold reality mm. of what awaits them in the night country, right? Uh, right? And then eventually Raymond Clark dies the same way. Uh, what you see at the end is like Pryor curled up in bed, warm and safe, but like tortured by this thing that he has done. And that's like, that's what the ghosts are. Yeah. Mm. They're the kind of, you know, the voice of that cold place that you can't, you haven't gone yet. It's... It's, and that, I think, is operating at the level of metaphor, but I thought it was quite effective. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think if they hadn't had them link together bits of the plot, um, then I, I, I think that would have been more effective. But I, I think they tipped their hands to making them too real in a way which served the writers 
Yeah, I think it's also of something that I do agree with, which is that like the show, it does suffer for like moments of deep unsubtlety just in its production, like the the music cues and so on, right? Like it's not, it's like it's me saying like I, I'm having a big old chinny wreck and saying like might we consider that this show is actually about dreams when its title song is literally Billie Eilish's "When We All Fall Asleep." Where do we go? Yeah, I'm sorry, a friend, but like revolving around that line. Like, you know, yes. it's like, it's not, it's not a big leap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, anyhow, that cool. was more true detective, more like rude detective. Am I Ooh. right? Let's end. Yeah. <laughs> that is, uh, that is, or should be all of the podcasts we've got time for. Hope you enjoyed the games. Hope you stuck around for the other stuff. If you didn't, that makes sense. Um, if you'd like to listen to more podcasts just like this one, you can find them on our website, createandcrowbar.com. They're also on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash createandcrowbar. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast on Patreon. If you'd like to find out more, uh, you can find all of that at patreon.com forward slash createandcrowbar. We have a Discord where such things are discussed. Link for that on our website at createandcrowbar.com. That's about it. My name is Chris Thurston. My name is Marsh Davis. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Here's an orange.